Our unison scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. We're going to do something a little different than normal. I see many of you grabbing your pew Bibles out. We're not going to use those. Um, you have to do this from memory. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, what we're going to do is we've got the scripture printed in the bulletin, uh, both large print and small print. Uh, we've printed it from the English Standard Version. This is the, the text I'm going to use to preach from. And so I'm not going to say a lot about uh, the scripture in, in advance in preparation for it here because I'm going to preach on it in just a moment. But since I'll be preaching from that text, I figure it's best to read from that text together. So if you'll look in your bulletin and find Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11 printed there, let's read these words together, realizing that they are the holy and inspired word of God. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of the prophet here to us. We pray that you would use them now to help prepare our hearts for Christmas. May we not rush to the manger, 
but may we take this time to wait and anticipate and hope. May you teach us that, how to hope and in what we should hope and the beauty and glory of our hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we enter today into a a new season in the church calendar, the season of Advent. And, And Advent is a season during which we look forward to the coming of our Lord. Uh, we look forward, in, in one sense, to his first coming, which we'll, of course, celebrate at Christmas. Uh, and so, so we're looking forward to Christmas and, and the Lord's first coming there. But at the same time, we look forward during Advent to his second coming, when he will return and set all things right, when he will, he will dwell with us and we will be his people and God himself will be our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. We look forward to that, do we not? Wouldn't that be a a wonderful thing to behold even right now? In the providence of God, my hunger for Christ's return to set all things right has been especially keen these last 10 days or so. Uh, I had a member of our church who had a family member whose young child was diagnosed with leukemia. And that certainly hit especially close to home for me. Just a couple days later, I had a friend of mine who gave me some sad news about a betrayal in his family that, that really tore the fabric of their family and changed it forever. And then just a couple days later, we received news that one of Aaron's dearest friends had lost her 21-year-old son. We each have our own experiences. Of course, I'm not the only one who who goes through these types of things. You all have experienced similar things, though different. There is so much wrong with our world. It is so evidently broken. And so today's text, I think, is, is a perfect text for us because we need comfort. We need hope. It was for people like us that God gave the words in Isaiah 40 to the prophet. He wrote those words many years ago, but they're perfect for today, are they not? But we we don't want to forget the original context in which they were in which they were written. We need to realize where Isaiah was coming from when he wrote these words initially. First, we we think about the book of Isaiah, and in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, what what he's largely speaking to is is an impending threat for the people of God in in Judah, uh, where where the Assyrian nation is, is threatening 
to invade, to conquer them. And, and they're worried about this, and this is a very real fear that they have, this threat coming from Assyria. But, but eventually, they, they, their history tells us that, that, that Judah was not conquered by Assyria then. But Isaiah, speaking in chapter 40 and beyond that, begins to look toward the future. He says, in essence, yeah, you guys dodged the bullet on this Assyria thing, maybe. But Babylon is coming. And Judah will be carried off into exile. And that, that context, which is still in the future when Isaiah is writing, is what he's speaking to, to, to warn about that thing which is coming and to lay this groundwork of words that, that will be there for the people when they are in exile, that they can look back to the words of Isaiah at that point and find comfort there. Biblical prophecy, by its very nature, works on, on various levels. And so, so there's a sense in which his words were, in the first place, intended to comfort the exiles in Babylon. But, but later we find these words pop up again in scriptures. If, if perhaps you, you caught that in Mark 1. We find some of these words now explicitly referring to John the Baptist, right? Who comes as a forerunner to Christ Jesus. We see these words in, in verse 3 of our text today. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. What is being described here is a practice that took place when, when a king or a ruler would come into a place from a faraway land. They would come in into a, to a place where their armies had conquered, perhaps. But before they would get there and show up in all their glory and all their pomp and all their celebratory nature, they, they would send a group of, of civil engineers, as it were, ahead of them. And they would make sure that the way was clear. They would, they would make sure the way is clear, that it was nice and easy. If the road that led into town maybe was windy, went around this, they'd just kind of plow through and, and make the path straight, as it were. If there were ups and downs, they'd, they'd knock through. That's the idea. Is, is kind of like, you know, we're going to just dynamite the whole way through so we have a completely flat plain, straight road to come. It's kind of like western Kansas, if you've ever been on I-70, right? It's just, it's just straight and flat, as long as the eye can see. It's what it's saying is, we're going to do this so, so that you can see the glory of this coming king, this coming ruler from far, far away. You can see him coming in in his glory. There's nothing to divert him to the left or to the right, nothing to divert our attention. Here he comes. We can behold him in all his glory as he comes. Right? Verse 3, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. Uneven ground shall become level and the rough places made plain. Right? This is what John the Baptist came to do. He came to make plain the way so people could see Jesus. They would know he was coming and when he came, they didn't have to go through a whole bunch of the preparations for him because the preparations had been made. So we can see a double meaning in this passage that was written 700 years before the coming of Christ. But even beyond this, biblical prophecies often have an eschatological or an end times referent. So it is here with this passage today. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken, we see in verse 5. Five chapters later, Isaiah himself will say this in Isaiah 45, 23. By myself I have sworn, this is God speaking through the prophet, from my mouth 
has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. This is language Paul later picked up on, of course, in writing to the Philippians, where he speaks of how at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's in light of this fact that this day is surely coming that the prophet Isaiah can write comfort comfort my people says your God right? he's, he's speaking to the people of God thousands of years ago and he's speaking to the people of God here today and he says comfort comfort he, he uses this repetition which is a common device in Hebrew to to, to kind of uh, emphasize a fact. It's bold print, if you will, or underlined. Comfort, comfort, my people. Where do you seek comfort? Where do you seek comfort? People seek comfort in lots of places, perhaps in, in wealth, perhaps in recreation. Sometimes we... We seek comfort in work, even, for the workaholics among us. Sometimes people seek comfort in sedation. Right? They, they turn to drugs or alcohol or some other thing just to, just to be relieved of the pain of life. They feel so much pain and they just don't want to feel it. And so they seek comfort in such a place. We need to make sure wherever it is that we are seeking comfort that we're not actually seeking a false comfort, right? Sometimes we do that. We seek a false comfort. We seek something that we think will give us comfort, something that even perhaps for a brief instant gives us comfort, but something that ultimately brings us pain, that doesn't bring us the comfort we think. Sometimes a false comfort will do that. I think of, of an example from, from baseball. I know you're shocked, but... Um, in baseball, there's a strategy sometimes used. You know, you, you steal a base, right? You're on first base, and you try to run to second base before anybody can catch you. And, and the way you do it is, is you, you time it perfectly so that as the pitcher begins to pitch the ball, you leave right at that instant, right? So you have the most amount of time to get there before the catcher catches the ball and throws it to second base to try to get you out. But there's also a kind of a, a different strategy called a delayed steal, and if you do a delayed steal, what you do is you don't leave right at the exact right time. You wait. You wait. You delay it. And the pitcher pitches the ball. And after he's already pitched the ball, maybe even as the catcher's catching the ball, even after he's caught the ball, you take off for a second. Now you think, well, why would you do that? That just gives you a lot less time for sure they're going to get you out. The reason you do that is because it catches them off guard. Right? Because they're ready. They think you might steal second. They're ready. They're paying attention. The pitcher pitches the ball they let down their guard. They become comfortable, relaxed, and in the midst of their comfort, you take advantage of it. And you catch them off guard. Their comfort has actually caused them harm instead of bringing them true comfort. And that's how, how a false comfort works. When we look to all these other things, they might feel for an instant like, oh, this is good, I feel better. But in the end, they bring us harm. 
So where should we find comfort then? Where, where is it that our comfort can be found? If, if the prophet Isaiah is telling us, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Where is it that he offers this comfort to us? And it's very clear. We find it in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, question one, which also is in the back of your hymnal. Page 872, a wonderful resource, the Heidelberg Catechism. The very first question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Listen to how the catechism answers. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now that, my friends, is comfort. That is comfort that is true comfort, and it is a message of hope. It is a message of hope for us on this first Sunday of Advent. It's not just wishful thinking, but it's a confident expectation, an assurance that ultimately the message that God has for his people is one of assurance. And so he tells the prophet Isaiah in verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a reference for the people of God. Right? He said, if, if we're talking in our current parlance, perhaps he would say, speak tenderly to the church. Speak tenderly to the people of God. Speaking tenderly, I think of, I think of Mr. Rogers, right? The, the movie's out right now. Aaron and I just went and saw it last week, actually. Uh, you know, a, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And I think of, of Fred Rogers and how he would speak. I don't know if there's ever been anybody who spoke more tenderly. <laughs> he, just, he just was so tender and so compassionate, so comforting in the way that he spoke. And that's what God is saying through the prophet here. He's saying, speak in that manner to the, the church, to the people of God. Speak tenderly to, to them. Not, not just because... You know, you want to talk them down off the cliff. Not just because you want to trick them into something. No, speak tenderly to them because we have a loving message for them. It's a wonderful message. It's a beautiful message. And they need to know the love of God in that message. Further, it is in verse 2, cry to her that her warfare has ended. Think of the headlines at the end of World War II. I'm not old enough to remember that. Some of you are. Uh, but we've all seen them in the history books, if nothing else, right? The headlines where, where they take up like the whole of the page with just two or three words. They were giant headlines, giant, bold, bold, huge print, like, like 10,000 fonts, you know, you know point font. Yeah, just, just giant, giant print. It would just say something like, war over, or great war ended, right? Or just victory. It was just a joyful, 
joyful thing. What comfort there was in those simple words, right? The war was over. The war had ended. There, there was no more warfare. And that's what is being said here in verse 2. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. What comfort there can be in those words as well. Now the church's warfare is very different than a, a, a warfare that we might have had in World War II, for instance. But, but it is a very real warfare nonetheless. Peter speaks about it in 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Right? We are at war with the passions of our flesh. Further, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.18, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Right? Holding faith and a good conscience. Trusting in God and keeping your conscience clean, right? Being at war against unbelief and sin. Further in 2 Corinthians 10, speaks of how though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We are at war in a very real sense against spiritual powers that would not only condemn us, not only, not only cause us to be, be lost, but would destroy us. We need to realize that that is a very real war. And even beyond that, apart from Christ, there's a very real sense in which we are at war with God. Right? We're at enmity with God apart from Christ. And he comes and sets us right with God. And in this especially, we find comfort and hope in the words of Isaiah. It says in verse 2, Cry to her, the warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. What a wonderful, comforting word that is. What a wonderful word of hope that our iniquity is pardoned, right? We all know that we have sinned. We all know that we have fallen short of the glory of God. We all know that none of us can by any means claim to be holy. But what God is telling us here is that in Christ Jesus, our iniquity is actually pardoned. It is forgiven. Not just that he's kind of set it aside and we'll come back to it later, right? <laughs> not not like, like somebody who says... Uh, when your father comes home, you're going to get it then, right? You know, it's not that deal. Not deal where, where we're not going to punish you now, but you're going to get it later. No. He said, your iniquity's pardoned. It's done. He goes on. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. There's a whole lot of different ideas. We don't have time to go into all of them, but basically the idea is this, that, that it's from the Lord's hand. That's the important part of what's being said here, Right? The Lord has paid for our sins, and so it's forgiven. He was the one to whom our debt was owed. He is the one who has paid it, and he is the one who assures us now that it has been paid. And so there's no chance for a mix-up in this. It is done, and that is why we can be confident, and we can have true hope. Alistair Begg puts it this way. He says, Christian hope is not the hope that clings to a mere possibility. This is a joyful, confident expectation in the fulfillment of the promises of God. It is, if you like, entering into a reality that is based on that which is verifiable, which produces a change in the presence, 
and helps us to look to the future. Now, there are things that obscure our vision to the future still. Sometimes it is our suffering. We say, I don't sense this hope. Right? Because I feel this suffering. Sometimes it's our, our sight. We say, I, I don't see this hope. Sometimes it's our sin, which separates us from God. We say, I don't deserve this hope. But that is the essence of the gospel, my brothers and sisters. The essence of the gospel is that we don't deserve it. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus, he is our hope. Right? As the hymnist put it, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That is the gospel that we proclaim. That is the gospel that we cry out. And and you might say, well, who's supposed to cry out this gospel? Who's supposed to proclaim the gospel? Surely it's you, pastor. You're the one who should be doing that. And absolutely, I should be doing that. And and I do pray that I do it clearly every week. I, I pray that you hear this message every time I step into this pulpit, that Christ Jesus died for our sins, and we can have forgiveness and salvation in him and in him alone. That is central to all that we do. And so I ought to, every time I stand here before you, proclaim that truth. But I'm not the only one who should be proclaiming that. We should all be proclaiming that. Each and every one of us. Now you might say, but, but wait, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a great speaker. I can't proclaim that. I'm not a great thinker. I'm not a great theologian. I can't do that. I, you know, but, but the reality is that we all should proclaim the truth of the gospel. Because the efficacy of our gospel proclamation is not a factor of the eloquence of our tongues. <laughs> right? It's not a matter of us being able to say the things just the right way. Because the power isn't in our ability to proclaim it. The power is somewhere else. I said, what shall I cry, says Isaiah. <laughs> what is there that, that I can say? He goes on, you know, all flesh is like grass. Beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath flows over it. Surely people are the grass. You know, he's saying, he's saying essentially, I, I'm, I'm but a man. How can, I, how can I say anything of eternal value? How can I say anything of lasting value? How can I say anything that would really have an impact on, on, salva- on eternity? And he comes back with those familiar words, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. And so that's where the power is. The power is in the word of God. The power is in the word. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews tells us. And there's power in the spirit of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And there is power in the gospel Alone, as Paul says in Romans 1, 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you believe in the gospel? Do you believe that Christ Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe that salvation is yours if only you trust in him? God's word tells us that it is 
the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you believe today in that truth, then you are saved not because you are good, but because God is great. Trust in him today. And then equipped with the word and with the spirit and with the gospel itself, there's not one of us who is unqualified or unable to cry out on behalf of God. Verse 9, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, Zion, again, the idea of the people of God. Again, repeated here in, in kind of a parallelism after that. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Jerusalem, behold your God. That's where we behold God. It's in his great victory, in his, in his coming a first time and again. It's paradoxically at the cross where he ultimately lays down his life for us. And yes, it is in the manger where he takes on human flesh, where he becomes killable, where he set aside his glory and took on discomfort that we might find glory and comfort in him. So the hymnist echoes the prophet Isaiah and says, go, tell it on the mountain. Right? Go tell it. Go shout it from the mountaintop. What do we tell them? That Jesus Christ is born. But beyond that, that Jesus Christ is born and has died and lives again. And that my salvation is in him alone. Because that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus has done. The very name Jesus means Yahweh saves and so it is we look to him for our salvation. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. He doesn't, he doesn't come trying to save. He doesn't come, come thinking about saving. He doesn't come you know, wondering if maybe he should save. No, he comes with might. He comes saving. He gets the job done. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense before him all things are his. He will rule over them mightily. And at the same time, he will tend the flock like a shepherd, gather lambs into his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. It reminds me of when I was a young child, maybe seven, eight years old. We'd go out to maybe my grandparents' house. and We'd stay pretty late and get home, and it was dark and late at night, you know, nine o'clock or something. And as we'd pull into the driveway, I would pretend I was asleep. I'd pretend I was asleep because I wanted my dad to carry me into the house. And I was never a good actor. I'm sure now, looking back on it, that he realized that I wasn't really asleep. But he would, he would gather me up into his arms. And he would hold me to his bosom and tenderly carry me in. And, and I felt so safe and so comforted and so loved. And that is what Isaiah says the Lord does with us. Our Heavenly Father picks us up in that way and holds us close to his bosom, close to his heart, and we are loved tenderly safe and secure 
in all our brokenness, in all our neediness, in all our weakness, in all our dirtiness, in all of our poverty of spirit. Charles Spurgeon says, Jesus, the good shepherd, will not travel at such a rate as to overdrive the lambs. He has tender consideration for the poor and needy. Kings usually look to the interests of the great and the rich, but the kingdom of our great shepherd, he cares for most for the poor. These weaklings and the sickly of the flock are special objects of the Savior's care. You think, dear heart, that you are forgotten because of your nothingness and weakness and poverty? That is the very reason you are remembered. And so we can find hope in him. We find hope in him, not because we are great, but because he is. So we go on proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. We do so verbally, sharing the truth of the gospel with others. We do so in our actions as, as an outflowing, as a, as a fruit of a changed life. And we do so at this table. For as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You see, he, he calls us here to, to not examine ourselves that we might prove ourselves worthy, but rather examine ourselves to realize how unworthy we are and to throw ourselves upon the mercy of Christ Jesus, realizing the great love and grace that have been shown to us, committing that we ourselves will show similar love and grace toward others, and especially within the body of Christ, making sure that we are right with one another if we are to claim that we are right with God. Would you turn to me in prayer? Turn with me in prayer to God. Our Lord, we, we come before you now once more confessing our sinfulness, confessing our brokenness, confessing our, our sorrow over it, but at the same time, we rejoice in the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. We rejoice that though we are, are filthy in our sin, you Choose to take us into your arms, to hold us close to your bosom, to show us the tender, loving mercy that is ours in him. We pray now that as we come to your table that you would help us to remember more truly and more deeply and in a way that will truly affect us 
in the way we live our lives, help us to remember the gospel, that Christ Jesus died for us, though we were still sinners. Be with us now as we partake this meal. May your grace be ours. In Jesus' name, amen.